rise that is commanded by the Lancastrians. Perhaps the second line will see no fighting, for the Yorkists will find it hard to advance up the slope. In any case, the Woodvilles are waiting until the last moment before lacing their helmets. He waits and says nothing to his father. There is no word yet for what Antony feels. He thirsts for violence, danger, quests, and new and unheard of things. He hates the waiting under the leaden sky, and then, after the fighting shall be done, he fears for a tomorrow that will be followed by many other days that will perfectly resemble that tomorrow. Daily life is more frightening to him than a sword thrust. If only armies could just rush against one another like stags in a forest. Alas, there has to be so much done first, in the way of mustering, travelling, feeding and arming. Life is too slow. Then they hear of a commotion in the front line of men-at-arms. The blue lion, rampant on the banner of Northumberland, is seen moving forward. Somerset's line is under orders to follow. The devil has set the weather against the Lancastrian archers, for their arrows have been falling short, while the Yorkist arrows travel swiftly on the wind. There is no help for it but to descend from their point of vantage and engage with the enemy directly. On the meadow, Antony finds himself in a series of tight melees. For a while the beasts of England, wyverns, unicorns, boars, lions, griffins, yales, and dragons, seem to be in combat over their heads as the men-at-arms struggle to keep the banners aloft in the great press. But soon the banners are down. Though Antony is able at times to use his pole-axe to steady himself, there is no possibility of wielding it in such a scrum. He and his men, as they press against the enemy, tread through the bloody slush, churn up the mud and trample on the bodies of friend and foe. By now, despite the snow-laden bitter wind, Antony feels himself to be encased in a furnace, and, unless he can find a space in which to unlace his helmet, he will surely pass out. Providentially, it seems, the press around him thins, and he can unlace his helmet, but having done so, he hears the screaming and wailing carried on the wind. Now that he can at last gaze over the field, he sees that all around him his fellows are in retreat. He lets his helmet fall and runs with them. A breathless squire shouts to him that Somerset and Wiltshire have found their horses and are already fled. Rivers is nowhere to be seen. Antony follows the great mass of the Lancastrian foot, who are hastening to the right down a steep slope which descends to the Cock River. It is difficult to keep his footing. The trap is closing in on them, and the killing time has begun. Already many have perished trying to wade through the fast-flowing water, so many that Antony runs on a bridge of bodies. But he is safe across the river, and he exults. Then it seems to him that he has been asleep. He feels well. The howling wind has died down, and there is no shouting and screaming, but he hears a gentle voice intoning, Follow the light! Follow the light! White-robed figures get him to rise, and they usher him up through a brightly lit tunnel, until he comes up before a castle in a forest. Snow is still falling, and Antony should find lodging for the night. He knocks at the gate of the castle. There is a long wait before the gate is opened, and then after his wounds have been inspected, he is allowed to enter. 
but when he seeks to proceed on into the great hall to make his plea for hospitality, he cannot. Though he is angry and insulted to find his way barred, even so he stands at the door waiting and looking in, for he knows that something is about to happen. It is bright within, for the light of scores of torches is reflected off walls that have been painted silver and gold. At the far end he can see a figure with a face that has been painted white. He is propped up by cushions on a pallet. This man, who must be very sick, wears a golden crown made of paper set at a precarious angle. Antony has only just enough time to register this before the procession begins to cross the middle of the hall from right to left. It is led by a maiden of extraordinary beauty with a bloody cloth round her neck, and she carries a broken sword. She is followed by a man who bears a lance, whose tip is stained blood-red, then six maidens bearing candelabras, and after them a priest who is bent on...